Welcome to episode 4 of Murder Shiro, a podcast where we explore cases of femicide in Kenya. Thanks for stopping by. Let's um let's dive right in. Today we will be talking about the 1980s murders of two Kenyan women, Monica Njeri and Lucy Kafura. The murders took place in Mombasa, Kenya's idyllic second city, located at the beautiful Indian Ocean coast. In 1980 and again in 1983, these two Kenyan women were murdered. A common thread connects these murders that starts with the fact that in the 1970s, Kenya had entered a military partnership with the United States of America. The partnership meant that the Kenyan port of Mombasa became one of the liberty ports for U.S. ships. A liberty port is one where a ship can dock and refuel, restock, and in this case it was military ships, so the servicemen on board would be allowed to come onto land and they'd be given shore leave or liberty. And at the time, there were about 33 American ships patrolling the Indian Ocean as part of the U.S.'s effort to safeguard Middle East oil shipping lanes. The result of this was that thousands of Randy sailors would flock into the otherwise sleepy coastal town of Mombasa every year. And as it happened, a very lucrative trade followed them the trade of the flesh, sex work. When the ships docked, groups of sex workers would make their way down to the coast from all over the country, many coming from the capital Nairobi on the overnight train. The business boomed during this time. And so it was that on August 3rd, 1980, one such liberty stop was made by the U.S. Navy ship USS LaSalle. On that same day, a young woman made the trip from Nairobi to Mombasa. Her name was Monica Njeri, a 29-year-old mother of two. She was a sex worker. Now, at this point, I'd like to appreciate the fact that this is 1980, not too long after Kenya's independence and not too long after the lives of Kenyans had been drastically altered by colonialism. Access to employment opportunities for African Kenyans was still quite limited and more so for women. So it's easy to see how many ended up doing sex work. It's a poverty trap that still catches many women and girls in Kenya today. Jerry arrived in Mombasa to find the town alive with activity. The USS LaSalle had just let out its batch of US Navy soldiers, who after some time at sea were probably in search of a good time. It is reported that later that night on August 3rd, 1980, at a nightclub in Mombasa, Jerry met a US Navy serviceman called Frank Joseph Sandstorm. Sandstorm was a long way from home in Coventry, Rhode Island, in the U.S. 
he was just 19 years old. It is reported that Jerry and Sandstorm spent time together that night. Reports say they drank alcohol, danced, and even smoked some cannabis. Jerry was not only there for a good time though. She was working and pretty soon she named her price, $41, which Sandstorm initially agreed to and paid. They rented a room and went inside and this is when things took a turn for the worse. It is reported that Sandstorm proposed Njeri perform a particular sexual act. No further details are available about it, but it is said that Njeri was uncomfortable and refused to perform the act, and Sandstorm lost his temper. He demanded his money back and grabbed Njeri's handbag. Jerry tried to take her bag back from him, screaming the whole time. A scuffle broke out between them, and as they fought, Sandstorm reached for a beer bottle, broke it on Jerry's head, and then repeatedly stabbed her face and neck with the broken shards of glass, killing her. The 19-year-old U.S. serviceman was arrested and charged with robbery with violence. The case, however, seemed doomed from the beginning. Here was a young, white American man before a 74-year-old British judge, L.G.E. Harris. The government prosecutor for the case was another Briton, Nicholas Howard, and Sandstorm's criminal defense lawyer was an Asian called Prem D. Pringer. All this in a supposedly independent African republic. Sandstorm confessed to killing Jerry and on September 30, 1980, he was found guilty of manslaughter. Now this is where things get strange. For this charge, he was fined a measly $70, the equivalent of 500 Kenya shillings at the time. He was also made to sign a two-year bond of good behavior and... That was it. He walked out of court a free man, despite actually having confessed to murder. As if to add salt to the wound, Sandstorm's mother Anna, who had traveled all the way to Kenya to attend her son's trial, remarked at the verdict, God is great. Justice has been done. In no time there was public outrage across Kenya. The attorney general at the time was Joseph Karugu. He was applauded by a crowd of Kenyans when he said, I am not satisfied that justice was done. He however added that he was frustrated because he had been legally impotent to do anything further in the case. Karugu accused the US government of interfering and pressing for a lenient verdict. US officials at the time denied this calling the verdict surprising. If anything, they said, the freeing of Sandstorm would seem an embarrassment to Washington. Still, an article by The Nation, one of Kenya's biggest dailies, states that Sandstorm later went on to rejoin the Navy, and 
it doesn't seem that he faced any reprisal from them for his actions in Kenya. There was widespread sentiment in Kenya that events like Njeri's murder were the cross that the country had to bear in order to appease the superpower America and maintain open avenues for foreign investment and aid. Let's not forget that this was deep into the Cold War and even if Kenya remained mostly non-aligned, there was tacit loyalty to the US. The price of being hostile to America in those days was seen to be one that Kenya could not afford. One small victory was that Njeri's brother, Peter Mwegai, did in the years to follow manage to successfully sue the US government on behalf of Njeri's children. The case was settled out of court with Njeri's family getting a little short of $17,000 in damages. Again, a paltry figure that I doubt went very far. Anyway, that's how it went with Monica Njeri. Not much is known about her kids who the Washington Post described as being 4 and 11 at the time. If they are still alive, they are all grown up now. At the time of Sandstorm's trial, race was a key issue. It wasn't commonly brought up in Kenya, which I found surprising given the legacy of discrimination against Africans during colonialism. In any case, Kenya was still evolving from a British colony to an African Republic, and the September 30th, 1980 verdict, it, it renewed outcry from Kenyans for judicial reform. Many pointed out that Sandstorm was a white American, tried by a white British judge, and the white prosecutor was accused of sometimes assuming the role of defense counsel as reported by the East African Standard of Nairobi at the time. The real defense lawyer was an Asian, meaning that no African Kenyan took official part in the trial. Only as witnesses did African Kenyans participate. Yet, the murder was of a Kenyan woman. At the time, 14 of the 19 high court judges in the country were still white, Many were British foreigners on contract in a country where white people made up fewer than 1% of the 15 million population at the time. Of course, the Kenya of today is much different and there's a lot to be grateful for in that regard. In the 1980s, the situation for Africans in Kenya seems to have been similar to what we see now of Americans of African descent. The Kenyan people were, for a time, forced to swallow their bitter feelings until 1983, when it happened again. This time, it was an aircraft carrier, the USS America, that had docked in Mombasa on a Liberty stop on April 5th, 1983. As had become commonplace, Randy sailors poured into the otherwise docile coastal town, drawing sex workers in droves. 
Lucy Kafura was one of them. She was in town to make some dollars. Unfortunately, by the next morning, Kafura would be dead. The events surrounding her murder are fuzzy, but what is known is that on the morning of April 6, 1983, her ice-cold body was discovered on a bed at Tangana Lodge in Mombasa. She had been raped and strangled. Bloodstains were found in the room, as well as a bloodied used condom that lay on the floor. Several witnesses at the time reported seeing a white man leaving the room at some point in the night. Initial investigations had indicated that the man who had solicited Kafura's services for the evening had said that his name was Tyson. Given the poor precedent set by the Sandstorm trial three years prior in 1980, the then Kenyan Attorney General Matthew Guy Mooley took full charge of the investigations. He didn't want to be like his predecessor, James Karugu, who had claimed to have been impotent to do anything further legally. Muli was leaving nothing to chance. He happened to be at the coast at the time, and he used his powers to arrest the ship, the USS America, and prevent it from leaving Kenya's territorial waters before the culprit was found. Soon, a U.S. sailor called James William Tyson was arrested and charged with the murder of Lucy Kafura. Tyson was a 21-year-old fireman from Riverdale, Maryland, in the United States. He hired attorney Prem D. Pringer. Pringer was the same lawyer who had helped Sandstorm beat his case. Tyson was confident of his innocence. When he faced Judge Zakias Chesoni, who would later become Chief Justice of Kenya, he was prepared to display his innocence and beat the charge against him. He came to court dressed casually in blue jeans, sneakers, and a red t-shirt. He confidently made his way through crowds of spectators, a total of 42 witnesses, 31 for the prosecution and 11 for the defense, would give their testimony over the course of the trial. Over the eight-day trial, defense lawyer Pringer decimated the prosecution's case. A major weak point was that a medical report had estimated Kafura's time of death to be 3.30 a.m. on the morning of April 6, 1983. Here, though prosecution witnesses contradicted each other, a common thread emerged that it had been at least 10.30 p.m. on the night of April 5, 1983. Another doubt that arose was whether Tyson had even been at Tangana Lodge that night. In his defense, he said that he began the night gambling at a local casino with three of his colleagues and two local women, none of whom was Lucy Kafura. The party had then shifted to the Oceanic Hotel in Mombasa, where Tyson had spent the night with a woman he was absolutely sure was not Lucy Kafura. The forensic evidence was equally weak. 
blood from the discarded condom had been thought to be from the assailant. But forensic DNA technology was practically non-existent at the time. ABO blood grouping was done, but proved to be of no help, as both Tyson and Kafura ended up being blood group O, the commonest blood group in Kenya at least. In the end, the defense sought an early dismissal, which Judge Chesoni granted, because substantial reasonable doubt had been raised. There was simply no good evidence to show that Tyson had ever been at Tangana Lodge or that he had even interacted with Lucy Kafura that night. When Tyson heard the verdict, he broke into a hearty laugh. He then remarked while still at the dock, This is fine. I never did it. Free, Tyson left the country and resumed duty in the U.S. Navy. Lucy Kafura's murder joined the long list of unsolved murders in Kenya. Two Kenyan women, Monica Njeri and Lucy Kafura, both murdered in Mombasa, both murders thought to have been by American military men. Monica Njeri's murder was solved and proved to have been carried out by an American serviceman. Lucy Kafura's murder was unsolved, but suspicion still rests with one of the people that had come off the ship USS America that April in 1983. I have a small addendum to Monica Njeri's case. The man who was found guilty of her murder and who was given what can best be described as a slap on the wrist, Frank Sandstorm. He killed again early in the morning of 11th December 2012 while under the influence of twice the legal limit of alcohol, he plowed his 2000 Oldsmobile Alero into a 2007 Nissan Maxima, carrying a 71-year-old woman, Tamara Nolan, her friend Marjorie, and Marjorie's daughter, Barbara, killing all three instantly. He had to undergo more than five surgeries before he was fit to stand trial in August of 2013. He was charged with second-degree manslaughter with a motor vehicle, improper entry into a highway, and driving under the influence. In 2014, he pled no contest to the charges and was sentenced to 30 years in prison, which eventually was suspended after he served 14 years, the result of a plea deal. He died a few years later of natural causes at the age of 58 on September 22, 2019. Okay, that's all I have for you today. I hope um, you have enjoyed that episode. Very tragic events there in the 1980s in Mombasa in Kenya. I'm already planning the next series of episodes focusing on one very famous case of femicide in Kenya. One that is almost as interesting as it is tragic. I'm actually surprised given the sheer volume of information and the work that was done for this case. It's still a small wonder to me that 
it's remained unsolved. There was a very high profile Kenyan family that was linked to this murder and by now the patriarch of the family and his son, the son was a suspect for a long time. They are both dead. Um, those are small clues. <laughs> I won't say much more but soon there will be a teaser on the gram. Please keep an eye out for this and until next time, stay safe and be kind to yourselves. Thank you for listening.